right. Well, good morning, Grace family. It's not quite Christmas in July, but uh, we do have a Christmas classic here in the month of May. I admit <clears throat> that it feels unusual on the calendar, uh, at least as it, insofar as it concerns the hallmark Christmas kinds of songs. I'm not ready to hear those before Thanksgiving. Um, and yet, this is a passage that we can never hear too much. We can never exhaust the depths of what's going on here. And so, one of the risks of, uh, of, of hearing a passage again that's very familiar is that we could just sort of have a glancing encounter with it. Uh, I was looking through the, uh, the archives of Grace Sermons on Luke 2, and I think this is the third time we've preached it in the last five or six years. Dave Talley has one. Kenny has one. Kenny's is really good. We could have just... Dave's was good too, um, but uh, that wasn't, a, I didn't, that, didn't, that didn't come out right, did it? They were both very good. In any case, we read this every Christmas, right? And there's the pageantry that's involved with this at every Christmas. And, and, and so it could become something that's so familiar to us that, that we sort of give it half-hearted attention, been there, done that. And this is the sort of thing that we can never eclipse. One of my prayers for all of us this week is that we would give this a fresh hearing with attentive ears and receptive hearts. Um, <clears throat> so last week when Junior preached, we had the, uh, the message on the birth of John the Baptist. And one of the things that's going on in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke is kind of this back and forth, point, counterpoint with uh, John the Baptist and Jesus. And, and the, the, the connection there is not bad, good, right, but forerunner and fulfillment. So um, John was miraculously conceived. Jesus is virgin conceived. John prepares the way. Jesus is the way. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. And so this is a birth narrative of Jesus. This is a greater birth narrative, not because John is bad, but because Jesus is the one to whom John was pointing. And as we've already seen in the, uh, the portions of, of Luke 2 that were read today, there's, there's really three key movements uh, to this passage. There's the birth of Jesus, the response of heaven, and then finally the response of the shepherds and Mary, and I think it's fair to say, by extension in that last chunk, right, Luke is, is, is preserving this account. We know he's preserving it for a Theophilus, but from generation to generation down from there, he's preserving it for us as well. <clears throat> so let's pray. Uh, if you haven't turned there in your Bibles, you can turn to Luke, Luke 2 after we pray, but let's pray and ask God to give us this fresh hearing of this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you with a recognition of how much we need your aid to hear your word well. Lord, not only to, uh, uh, to hear the words that are read and to hear the words that are spoken, but to receive them as good news of great joy, to receive them in faith, to receive them in hope, uh, with, with fresh appreciation, even still just beginning to scratch the surface of all that was being accomplished uh, by your son as he began life in that manger. And so we ask these things in his name and for the sake of his glory. Amen. All right, so our first chunk is uh, verses 1 through 7, and that's the, the, the part that, that just recounts the birth of Jesus for us. And we get the context, right, in the first three verses. The context is this census that's taking place that 
moves Joseph and uh, Mary to Bethlehem. And, and, but but what, one of the things that Luke's portraying with this census is, is he's reminding us that while this is a supernatural birth, right, while this is a miraculous birth that is taking place, it is also a birth that is taking place in real history. So it takes place in those days following a decree from Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was governor in Syria, right, actual uh, historical moments, points in time that, that, that have been documented for us uh, by, by Luke, the gospel writer. And, and the point of that, by the way, is that if God the Son does not actually enter the human race in real history, then there is no possibility of salvation from real historical human sin. If it's not, it's supernatural, yes, but if it's not really history, then it doesn't really save people who are really plagued by the personal dilemma and the historical predicament of our own sin. This, just as a side note, <clears throat> it's one of the reasons that uh, Hebrews 2.16 tells us that Jesus did not help fallen angels, but only fallen humans, right? There's more that could be said there, but um, he, didn't enter, he didn't enter the angelic race. He entered the human race and so helps humans rather than fallen angels. So that's the context. And then in verses four and five, right, we get the, we get the move, what, what, this, what this census produces in terms of the fulfillment of prophecy. And, and just, you know, you think about it, to the vast majority of the world at the time, it just looked like a census. Maybe, maybe inconvenient, but on the face, it just looked like a census, but we find in verses four and five that this census is the tool that's being used in the sovereignty of God to move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem in fulfillment of messianic prophecy. That's a reminder for us as well, isn't it? Right? Uh, that, that at any moment, there are a million more things going on under the sovereignty of God than we ourselves can presently see. That was true then, that's true today. To Old Testament Joseph, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes Joseph, it just looked like he was being betrayed by envious brothers. There was a lot more going on, wasn't there? To us, it may just look like COVID and the resultant loss of some financial income. Or maybe to you, it looks like the rejection of a teacher or a friend or a coach. God forbid a family member. To most of Joseph and Mary's contemporaries, it just looked like a census. And yet it's a great reminder for us that earth-shaking events were underway, right, in and through uh, the sovereign handiwork of God. So census, movement to Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary, and eventually, right, after what seems this interminably long wait, so there's this, this promise of provision that the seed of the woman, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, will one day rise up and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so after this interminably long wait, Galatians 4.4 4 tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Or as our passage says in verses 6 and 7, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So the long-awaited moment's here, right? The snake crusher from Genesis 3.15 has arrived. But when you think about all the expectations that might be associated with snake crushing, seems pretty inauspicious, doesn't it? 
It's, a, it's an underwhelming debut given the expectations that you might have from Genesis 3.15. This is a baby in an animal's food trough. Really? Really? This is the pattern of how Jesus is going to do what he came to do. He has not at this point gone as low as he's going to go, but he's laying the pattern for how he's going to do what he came to do. This is, again, right? You, you can barely wrap your mind around this. The one whom all things were created through and for is laid in a food trough. And he's on the way to going lower still. He will be, as Isaiah 53 says, despised and rejected by men. He will be smitten even by God and afflicted. That doesn't look like strength. What's happening in the manger doesn't look like snake-crushing power. It looks like a helpless victim. So why is this the pattern, right? Why is this the pattern of his mission and the pattern of our redemption? Well, we all sometimes wonder, don't we? And the, and the scriptures are honest in wondering this as well. Why do the wicked prosper? It's a fair question. Of course, the dilemma of wickedness in the world is much more complicated than that, right? Right? The, the, the problem, biblically speaking, the big problem, biblically speaking, is not only that there's wickedness out there, but that it's in here. You remember the description from uh, the first few verses of Ephesians 2? Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It goes on. You know who the prince of the power of the air is that Paul says fallen humanity is following? That's Satan, the ancient serpent. And he's saying in our fallenness that we are serpentine like him. That's who we are. And if Jesus has come to crush snakes and we're serpentine, how do we, how do we avoid getting crushed too? That's the big problem right? Redemptively speaking, how can God save a single sinner? And the answer is this pattern <clears throat> on display in the work of Jesus beginning in the manger. He has come, yes, and will come to destroy sin. But he came first to bear sin's penalty so that repentant sinners with serpentine hearts may find that they are delivered and not destroyed by him. That's why the pattern works the way that it does. Now, in order to, to, to go as low as he needed to go to save us, that means that Jesus had to become truly human, right? As God the Son, he is absolutely invulnerable to death, can't die. And yet the penalty for sin is death, so what gives? The purpose of the incarnation, then, is so that Jesus, in the fullness of time, will take on a nature that is capable of suffering the penalty of death, the one who, in eternity past, is intrinsically invulnerable to death, is taking on in this humility a nature that is capable of dying, right? Living as our representative righteously on our behalf, perfectly where we have failed, and then laying that life down <clears throat> in sacrificial offering. So that means that following the miraculous conception, like all human children, Jesus gestated in his mother's womb. That means he had dirty diapers. That means he was dependent on being nursed by his mother Mary. He had to learn to crawl and walk 
and run and read and write. Without ever surrendering his deity, he humbled himself by entering our line on the way from a manger to a cross. You see what I'm saying? What I'm saying? You, can, you can't get beyond this, right? We, we, we can't been there, done that with Luke chapter 2. And along that path, we see time and again how humbly Jesus refrains from exercising the prerogatives of his own interests, right? So Kenny's sermon from a few years back, I was very encouraged by it. Thank you for preaching that. Uh, he said uh, in that sermon, there is so much glory in that manger, but it's counterintuitive to behold, isn't it? Chunk number two, uh, verses eight through 14, we get a picture, a glimpse of what makes heaven sing. And uh, Kenny put this passage, 1 Peter 1.12, into the sermon prep this week. I was glad he was thinking of it as well. That passage tells us that the salvation accomplished by Jesus is something into which angels long to look. And so here we are in our passage, right? These angels are getting a glimpse of this salvation getting underway. And where do they shine God's glory? Eventually, they are, they are going to point primarily to the manger. But, but before that, they show up in a shepherd's field outside of Bethlehem. Not Caesar's palace, not even the temple in Jerusalem, to some shepherds. And the point, by the way, with the shepherds is not that they were creepy lowlifes. It's just that they're every man, right? That, that's, that's who they are. They're, they're, they're every man. The, Jesus is the Savior for every man, not just the elite. Now, when, they, when people in the Bible encounter the glory of God like the shepherds are doing here, they tend to respond in fear. And that's exactly what we find in the case of the shepherds as well. God's glory, that kind of revelation of God's glory provokes an awareness of our broken relationship with him due to sin. But the angel says in verse 10, fear not, I have good news of great joy. In verse 11 that good news he specifies is that today the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, has been born. And in verse 12, he gives the sign by which the shepherds can locate this child. The sign is a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's to be expected, right? That's what you do with babies. We do it now. They did it then. <clears throat> the part that's not so expected is that this baby will also be found lying in a manger. That's how they're going to find him. And at this point, Verses 13 and 14, it's almost, like, it's almost like heaven can hold back no longer, right? This heavenly host can restrain themselves no longer. They burst out in praise at what Kenny called in that sermon, the manger glory of God. See, for, for all the angelic glory that's occurring on this field on this night, the angel says real glory, the real glory of God is to be found with this infant in the manger. <clears throat> so here's their message in a nutshell. Everything you and I ever need is in that manger. He is the one who does what no one else can and nothing else can, namely, uniting at one and the same time glory to God and peace and joy for lost sheep. <clears throat> so what about this uh, strength that looks like weakness? I was thinking of another passage this week that's been important to me over the years. James 4 tells us that those who humbly submit to God can not only resist the devil, that's James 4, 7, but also find that in doing so, the devil will flee from us. It's a pretty powerful promise, isn't it? When you think about it, in our case, it, 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 isn't, it isn't the case that the devil flees because of us. 
right? We don't, we don't scare him enough in our, in, our own, in our own right. And he will come back and he will try again. But he will flee, according to James 4, 7, from us because of humble submission to Christ. <clears throat> so that humble obedience of Jesus that we see on display in the manger, it's portraying in a major key what James 4 says can be true of us in a minor key. By Jesus' own humble submission to the will of his good and trustworthy Father, that is the pattern by which he both crushes Satan he Satan's head and saves us all from Satan's power. That's how he does both of those things. And it's for that reason that he's given the name that's highly exalted, the name above all names. One in the same time, magnifying the glory of God, making provision for our joy and peace. I, I don't know about you, but I, I find that it's, it's hard to fathom sometimes the willingness of Jesus to do this, right? When he actually has all of the power and all of the prerogative to self-protect, but from manger to cross refuses to do so. When you think about that, it's, it's just the, the, the strength of character is phenomenal in refusing to self-protect when transcendent self-protective power is at his disposal. Think maybe of his self-restraint before Caiaphas or Pilate, or even on the cross. How does he do that? Right? How does he look not to his own interests, but to the interests of you and to me? Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He rested himself on the trustworthy weight of the character of God. And in doing so, it, it, it's, it's almost incalculable to consider how low he stooped to make you his own, to make me his own. And that's what makes heaven sing praises. That's why all heaven erupts in praise at the birth of this child. But of course, what makes heaven sing praise should make us sing praises as well, shouldn't it? So here's a diagnostic question for us, for all of us today. Do you find this good news bringing you joy today? Or is it just interesting? Is it just curious? Is it, eh, that was neat. Joy? It's a good question, isn't it? If you've never received this good news with joy before, you can do that today. We've got people who will help you. I'll say a little bit more about that in a bit. You can welcome him. You can receive his joy and receive his peace. What about others who maybe would say they have done that, but have cooled to that good news? in more recent times. Well, as we turn to our final chunk, the response of the shepherds and the response of Mary, I think we've got some encouragement that maybe can help, help us fan the flame of that joy and this good news of Jesus, if that's where you find yourself today. So, so the shepherds receive this message. They're told by the angels, everything you ever need is in that manger. We sometimes struggle to believe that, don't we? It's hard. Sometimes we act like it's hard to believe it, right? The most ancient lie of all is the lie that says that if you and I don't look out for number one, there's no one in the universe who will. So do whatever it takes to make sure that you get yours. That's the most ancient lie. And that kind of lie scoffs at the notion that this seemingly helpless baby in the manger could do anything about sins that you've suffered or sins that you've committed, so since the time of Genesis 3, and in a way that is very much unlike Jesus, we all, and now it leaks out in different ways from different personality types, but we all tend very acutely to reach 
for self-protection, don't we? Sometimes in what we do, sometimes in what we avoid doing, number of other manifestations that it may look like, but we tend to reach for self-protection in a manner that's very much unlike Jesus. So you see him laying in a food trough, or you see him executed amongst criminals and go, that doesn't look very powerful. I don't see much protection in that. How can we be convinced that everything we ever need was in that manger? And this is where I think the account of Luke of the shepherd's response and Mary's response is not only an account of what they actually did, but it's, it's, it's positioned as an encouragement to Theophilus and to us by extension that we should likewise respond to Jesus. So first, the shepherds. Notice in verse 16 that the shepherds, on hearing this announcement, make haste to go to the manger, right? They don't doubt. They don't delay to tie up loose ends. They behave like they have been convinced that everything they need is in that manger, and they just go, right? Uh, they declare and they rejoice in this good news on their way, on their way back. <clears throat> There's a pattern you can detect in the shepherds and Mary, right? And we see it in the shepherds first. They hear the good news. They embrace the good news, and then they proclaim the good news. Hear, embrace, proclaim. And we'll say more on, on hearing well in, in just a second, because it is possible to hear and not embrace. But the fact that the shepherds move, not only to go and see this child in the manger, but to proclaim this good news that's been shared with them, right, is an indication that they've been transformed, not only by hearing the news, but by embracing the news, right? It's changed everything for them. We don't know if they ever saw Jesus again, but their lives are changed not only by hearing the announcement, but by embracing it as well. Mary also, right, similarly, she hears, embraces, and obeys. We know from uh, chapter 1, she hears from the angel Gabriel. In chapter 2, verse 17, she hears from the shepherds. In 2.19, she embraces. We'll look at that in a little bit more detail here in just a second. But down in verse 21, we see her obedience, right, along with Joseph. It, it could seem like almost a, a throwaway verse. Like, does, does it go with 1 to 20, or does it go with the next passage, and, and what do you do with it, and do you even bother, right, preaching it? At the end of eight days, 21 says, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. That's important. That reflects their obedience, right? Eight days later, they're, they're still embracing, they're still trusting this good news. They're acting with faithfulness in response to this good news, naming him Jesus, Matthew 1 tells us his name means that he's the one who will save his people from their sins. They're acting in trust that this is their, however helpless he may appear, he is their savior. Their obedience flows from their embrace. Now, let's look at verses 17 to 19 for, <clears throat> for a moment. I want to bear down here and consider the nature of, of Mary's embrace of the good news in particular, right? She's definitely doing more than just hearing. So verse 17, when they saw it, that's the shepherds, when they saw the sign, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then it you know, goes, on, goes on from there. So the shepherds testify. And then in verse 18, after they testify... 
Other people heard the testimony of the shepherds as well, and many of them were told wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now, that's not a bad thing, right? It may well be a step in the direction of embracing, right, of treasuring and pondering, but it's not necessarily the same thing. It's possible to wonder and then move on, right? It's possible to have this kind of ooh-ah amazement and then not go any deeper than that. So what happens in verse 18 while it may be part of the, the, the pathway to verse 19, it's not necessarily the same thing that Mary does in 19 when she treasures and ponders all of these things in her heart. And I'm going to reach ahead in Luke's gospel for just a moment. I don't think this passage has been assigned, so I'm not stealing thunder here, but we are eventually going to get to Luke chapter 8. And when we get to Luke chapter 8, we will hear the parable of <clears throat> the sower. And when Jesus tells that parable, he indicates that the sower scatters seed among four different kinds of ground, the path, the rock, the thorns, and the good soil. And when he finally gets down in chapter 8, verse 15, to explaining what's going on in this good soil, <clears throat> here's what he says. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Now, in that parable, the difference in the four kinds of soils, the difference isn't the seed. The difference is the depth to which the different kinds of soils receive God's word, the depth to which they take God's word. Mary is a picture in our chapter today of the good soil, isn't she? Her treasuring and pondering are modes of taking this good news in deep. She doesn't just have a glancing encounter with it. She holds it fast. She soaks it into the taste buds of her soul, if you will. There is a hearing that occurs without truly hearing. And there is a hearing that leads to treasuring. We need the last kind, and Mary is modeling it for us here. Which is not to say, of course, that the shepherds or Mary were perfect, right? And never stumbled from this point forward. Even Mary fumbles. You can see that in Mark 3 if you want to sometime. They're imperfect, but they're in process. And they're moving in the right direction on account of a transformative embrace of this good news. All right, so what about us? <clears throat> right? Luke writes this not only to just tell interesting facts and details, but so that there would be the same impact in the life of Theophilus and by extension us as well. Through, this, through the responses or the portraits of the responses of the shepherds and Mary, Luke wants to call us to a similar response of hearing, embracing, and obeying this good news as well. He wants us to live and act as though every, we believe everything we've ever needed was in that manger. Now, again, just consider how much there is to ponder and treasure in, in just the simple fact that God's transcendent saving glory comes to us in the form of a humble, dependent child, right? We'll never grasp it all. The creator of the world comes to a world without room for a proper sleeping arrangement. He is a king who will conquer our greatest enemies through self-sacrifice that looks like defeat, He's a Messiah who holds back the rightful prerogatives of self-magnification at every point so that his saving power will deliver and not destroy us. We, we don't get beyond that. There's no end to the depths of those meditations or the transformative power they could hold for us if we would only, a la Luke 8, 15, hold them fast with an honest and good heart. 
Lastly, Luke also wants us to see that in our own lives, God isn't absent in our weakness, right? There's There's a pattern that's being laid down here in the work of Christ that is applicable to us as well. He wants us to know that God loves to show up in our weakness. You remember the uh, near the conclusion of 1 Corinthians 1, we preached through 1 Corinthians not too long ago, Paul says these words. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, following Christ's own pattern, God loves to show his faithfulness in our weakness. That's not moving against the grain of the way God works. That's with the grain. Union with Christ means that Christ's disciples go where he goes. So if God's displaying his strength in your weakness, that doesn't make you out of step with the pattern of Jesus, but very much in step, right? Even including knowing him in the fellowship of his sufferings, which is not to say that it's easy, is to say that it's good. This pattern in time does lead to exaltation. It did for Jesus, it will for us. God will exalt those who walk with Christ, but he does so, 1 Peter 5 tells us, at the right time. And we simply have to leave the timing to God, who has proven himself completely trustworthy in Christ. So if, if in Christ, God makes snakes into sons and daughters, he can be trusted for the timing that he sees and we do not, right? If you're feeling weak today, That is admittedly a hard place to be, but again, in the economy of God, not necessarily a bad place to be. This is where God loves to meet his children. So here's your take home, Grace. If everything we ever need was truly in that manger, and if treasuring that mode of God's glory is a tool used by the Holy Spirit that leads us to becoming more conformed to Christ's image, then commit yourself this week to pondering and treasuring just how far he came to be with you. All right, maybe lay hold of a verse this week like 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul says there, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty may become rich. We cannot calculate, right, the, the depths to which he has gone to be with us. And there will be today, probably, before the day is over, but certainly this week, there will be temptations for each of us to ponder perhaps with the trappings of self-pity, the reality of our many weaknesses. Ask God in his mercy to redirect those meditations. It's kind of what they are, right? To the glory of Christ's strength made manifest in his weakness and yours instead. When we gather together, what we're trying to do is to help one another fundamentally stir up our embrace and our treasure of Christ. Treasuring the one who came in the manger to provide everything we ever need. That's what we've been doing in this service, what we're trying to do in this sermon. It's what we'll do as we close in song now and then move out from here this week. I'll close in prayer in a second as Kenny comes. As I do so, let me just remind you, or before we do so, let me remind you of several resources. Maddie mentioned them earlier, right, for further prayer and encouragement that you may need as this service comes to a close. We have the prayer team a tent in the back. They would love to talk with you. 
If you have questions about uh, what it means to receive this good news with joy, maybe you've heard this good news. It's a familiar passage plenty of times. <laughs> but you wonder what it means to receive it with joy. They'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. And then the uh, email, right, for uh, throughout the course of the week is prayer at graceevfree.org. The elders would love to hear your requests and concerns and move towards you in prayer. All right, let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, even now, as we are bringing this service to a close and moving out from here uh, this week, that you would help us, like the shepherds, like Mary, to be transformed not only by an understanding, but by an embrace of this seemingly impossible good news, Lord, of the manger glory of Jesus, how far he came to be with us. Would you strengthen and encourage us? Would you help us to ponder, to lay hold of, to treasure uh, the, the, the depths to which you've gone to turn snakes into sons and daughters? Would you be glori glorified by our embrace, by our treasuring this week? Would you turn our hearts as often as necessary from what may sometimes be our obsession and frustration with our weaknesses to the good news that you love to show yourself strong in and through them after the pattern of what you did in Christ? We pray that he would be honored and exalted. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.